When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Elizabeth Barnhill about our favorite fall 2022 books. Elizabeth is the adult book buyer for the independent bookstore in Waco, Texas, Fabled Bookshop and Cafe. She graduated from Baylor University and worked for 20 years as a speech pathologist before turning her lifelong passion of reading and books into her dream job when Fabled opened in 2019. Elizabeth spends her days reading as many upcoming releases as possible and hosting events at Fabled. You can find her on Bookstagram at at Waco Reads. Fall 2022 has not been a big release time for books that really resonated with me, so you're going to find that there is some overlap between the books that I recommended last week in the episode with Kelly Hooker for July through September and some of the books I recommend today with Elizabeth. I always love talking books with Elizabeth, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Welcome, Elizabeth. How are you today? I'm great, Cindy. It's always good to talk books with you. I know. I feel like it's been a while, and I'm so glad you're back so we can talk about our favorites of fall 2022. Let's do it. Well, I have found that while so many fabulous books have come out in 2022, that fall 2022 has not been a stellar reading season for me. There were fewer books that I was excited about than normal to start with, and then some of the ones I was excited about just didn't really work personally for me. So how about you? Well, unfortunately, it's been the same for me. This has been a pretty bleak season. I I definitely have some I loved, but a lot of them I was also excited about and they just didn't quite pan out. So I've been DNFing a whole lot of books this season. So I'm um, kind of wrapped up 2022 and already looking forward to 2023. I know you and I have been communicating and talking about the number of books we've been DNFing and how there hasn't been a lot 
that has been good, but that the ones we did like, we really liked. But it's interesting because it seems like the fall has almost become this time for huge celebrity memoirs, which we often don't get ahead of time. And then for really large authors like Celestine and Jody Picot, John Irving, but that you're not seeing a lot of just the kind of standard, wonderful books that come out coming out in the fall. Yeah, I've, I've come to, to realize after all these years now at Fable that really the winter list is probably my favorite. Really, January through April, we find debut authors or hidden gems, and those are the, those are the ones that I really gravitate to more. Although every now and then there are some surprises and a couple of big authors that have just come out, I really did enjoy their books. So I'm sure we'll get into that very soon. Absolutely. And I agree. Winter seems to be a very popular season these days. And there are so many on my list and I've begun diving into those as well. So it is nice to have the extra time to kind of get ahead on some of those and make my way through them since there are so many of them. Yeah, I always have a very strict rule that I don't start the next season until we've done our fall reading guide or or whatever season we're in. And this is the first year I've actually cheated and already started my winter reading before our fall guide, because I'm just very anxious to turn the page to a new year. When will the fall guide be? That will be October 27th. Great. I always look forward to those. They're so much fun to listen to. I don't always catch them live, but I always watch the recording. Oh, good. Yeah, the live are fun. The the uh, chat is always really, really fun. And Allison and I have different tastes in books. And we'll all we've started to do some other booksellers in the store that have very different tastes than us to add some variety. But it'll just be Allison and I talking about the books. And we're just kind of putting a pretty bow on the guide right now. Oh, that's fun. I always enjoy seeing it. Thank you. Well, why don't we dive in to our top 10 for fall of 2022, and I'm going to let you go first. I am so curious to see if we have any overlap. All right. Well, my first one is probably the biggest named author of my list, and that is Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. What a masterful story based on Dickens' David Copperfield. And I promise you, I have accidentally said David Copperhead and Demon Copperfield over and over it's it's easy to confuse those titles. I found myself referencing the classic while reading this haunting Appalachian story that screams from the pages the indignity of generational poverty, especially as it pertains to children. Demon will stick with me for a very long time. I simply adored it. So I did actually had a list of all the different cast members of David Copperfield, and Barbara was very, very inventive with how she took their names and made them just a little bit different, but their personalities were the same. And uh, it was very good. It's, it is bleak. It is long. But she is one of my favorite authors. I will read anything she writes. I have not picked that one up because it does sound so bleak, but you're like the fifth person to recommend it. And you were the first person I saw to recommend it. And then I've seen other people recommend it since. I think I probably do need to pick it up, but it does sound like it's really dreary. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it is pretty dreary, but there, <laughs> I just love the way she writes. Uh, she writes about nature so beautifully. She really paints a picture well with words. So huge Barbara Kingsolver fan here. I saw her speak one year at Book Expo and she was just delightful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was one of the very few books I will say that I was eagerly anticipating and it actually panned out the way I was hoping. That's so nice when that works out. And once again, that's Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Great. 
Okay, so my first is How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz, and it is fiction. So Cara Romero is now one of my favorite fictional characters. Certainly she is flawed, but she is so darn funny, and she experiences tremendous growth in the book. I just adore her. So written in a unique format across 12 job counseling sessions, the book is a quick but very compelling read. Cara, a woman in her 50s who recently lost her job at a factory that manufactured lamps, narrates her story as she visits with a job counselor each week in order to find a job or qualify for more benefits. Interspersed among the counseling sessions are various forms and documents from her life, her rent application, job applications, and eventually her application for citizenship. Cara is tough, full of heart, and at times absolutely hilarious. I laughed out loud so often as I was reading this one. It's the perfect combination of humor, family drama, a strong setting, it's in Washington Heights in New York City, and characters you root for even as they sometimes make poor decisions. So the forms part of this story was one of my favorite. As she opens each counseling session, she has these lengthy forms that Cara's filled out, and her responses are just so funny, so compelling, sometimes a little heartbreaking. I just thought it was very well done. It's short, but it packs a huge punch. And that's How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz. Yeah, I have not read that one, but I have heard it is very good. You are one of several people who has recommended that one. Several people have recommended the audiobook for that one, that it is just so well done. I read it, but it sounds like the audio is really good as well. Well, that's good. All right. So my next one is Winterland by Ray Meadows, and that will be out November the 29th. This is very reminiscent of Maggie Shipstead's Astonish Me and Julia Phillips' Disappearing Earth. It's set in the Soviet Union in 1973. There is perhaps no greater honor for a young girl than to be chosen to be part of the famed USSR gymnastics program. So when eight-year-old Anya is tapped, her family is thrilled. What is left of her family, that is. Years ago, her mother disappeared. Anya's only confidant is her neighbor, an older woman who survived unspeakable horrors during her 10 years in a gulag camp, and who, unbeknownst to Anya, was also her mother's confidant and might hold the key to her disappearance. As Anya moves up in the ranks of competitive gymnastics and other girls move down, Anya soon comes to realize that there is very little margin of error for anyone. I spent a lot of time Googling in this. It's one of those great stories where it's a fictional character set among real characters. So uh, I'm sure Google is wondering what in the world's going on because I kept (laughs) Googling Russian gymnasts from the 1970s. (laughs) And one that was very interesting and heartbreaking was the story of Elena Mukina. So I would recommend hearing about her story. But ultimately, this was just a a great book. I I loved uh, as a kid watching the Russian gymnasts and the Russian ice skaters. And I just think it's a fabulous book. And that is Winterland by Ray Meadows. I've heard great things about that one as well. Yeah, it's it's a unique one for sure. So my next one is Jacqueline in Paris by Anne Ma. It's historical fiction. It came out September 27th. 20-year-old Jacqueline Bouvier spent her junior year abroad in post-war 1949-1950 Paris And in Jacqueline in Paris, Ma brings to life Bouvier's time there and its impact on the rest of her life. Thrilled to be away from the societal pressure of New York and her mother's prying eyes, Jacqueline falls in love with Paris's social scene, the cafes, theater, and art, while also slowly realizing that the city is struggling with the aftermath of World War II. 
Spies abound while communism is taking a foothold in French politics, and no one is who they seem. Ma charts the beginning of Bouvier's long love affair with Paris, as well as bringing the City of Lights to life post-World War II. This beautifully written story transported me to a Paris with which I was unfamiliar and focused on a lesser-known time in Jackie Kennedy Onassis's life that is often glossed over. This book will appeal to those who love historical fiction, who love Paris, and who love Jackie Kennedy. I just thought it was so well done. I love Paris and I love Jackie Kennedy, so of course I had to pick this one up. It has a stunning cover. I just felt that I learned a lot. I think all of these new books about post-World War II Europe are fascinating because you kind of think the war is done and people move on with their lives, but that doesn't happen at all. There's still so much jockeying and things happening and everybody trying to cement their place in the new world order. And I just find it absolutely compelling. That sounds good. And when I actually, when I saw this book, I thought, oh, this looks like a Cindy book. So... (laughs) Well, and Anne Ma is sick, and so she's been unable to promote her book at all. But everybody's been rallying around trying to make sure that the word gets out about the book. So I've been trying my best to make sure I talk about it and how much I liked it. And that's Jacqueline in Paris by Anne Ma. All right. My next is The Ingenue by Rachel Kapelke Dale, which will be out December the 6th. When former piano prodigy Saskia Kreis returns home to Milwaukee after her mother's unexpected death, She expects to inherit the family estate, which is called the Elf House. I loved the descriptions of this Gothic-type mansion. But with the discovery that her mother's will bequeathed the Elf House to a man that Saskia shares a complicated history with, she is forced to re-examine her own past and the romantic relationship that changed the course of her life. The Ingenue examines mother-daughter relationships the pitfalls of being a child prodigy, and what happens when the things that once made you special are taken away from you. Moving between Saskia's childhood and the present day, this dark contemporary fairy tale had me riveted from page one. This is kind of a post-Me Too movement book, and I will say there are some very cringy scenes with an older man who is preying on younger starlets. So tread carefully if that bothers you, but I loved the atmosphere. I really like how Kapelke Dale um, writes books. She wrote The Ballerina uh, that came out last year. And I highly recommend this book. It's The Ingenue by Rachel Kapelke Dale. I don't think I even know that one. I know The Ballerinas, but I don't recall that I know The Ingenue at all. I'm going to have to look it up because sometimes I'll see a cover and I'll be like, oh, I do know that book. Yeah, she's a, you see a, a back of a woman and I think she's um, playing piano, but it's, it's a really good one. Okay, good. But dark. I'm not sure. It may be too dark for you, yeah, Cindy. It does sound too dark for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't say that to every single book. Like, that sounds too dark for me. So I was like, I'll just be quiet. <laughs> I know. I tend to go dark. You definitely go darker than I do. But you know, that's what makes it good because it's nice to have different choices. Agreed. So my next one is Miss Del Rio by Barbara Mujica. It's historical fiction, and it came out on October 4th. Miss Del Rio chronicles the life of famed Hollywood star Dolores Del Rio, whose life spanned a number of pivotal moments in history, including the Mexican Revolution, the Jazz Age, Golden Age Hollywood, and World War II. Relayed through Mara, Dolores's fictional hairdresser and close friend, the novel follows Dolores through a meteoric film career in Hollywood, despite intense racism directed her way and an intense personal life, which included numerous lovers and husbands, all amid the backdrop of wealth and privilege. 
When the war intensifies nativism in the United States and non-white stars are ostracized, Dolores finds she must return to Mexico to continue her career. Hollywood fans will enjoy the presence of other screen royalty, including Marlene Dietrich and Orson Welles. I read this book in a day and I found it absolutely fascinating. I loved learning more about Mexican history, Golden Age Hollywood, and what it was like for actors trying to switch from silent films to talkies. I also learned a lot about the Mexican film industry in the 1940s, something I knew absolutely nothing about. I had never even heard of Dolores Del Rio, and I spent a lot of time Googling, like you were talking about a minute ago, Elizabeth, when I read this book. She was deemed to be the most beautiful woman in the world at one point, and I had fun looking up all the photos of her. She did not have an easy life, but she definitely had a fascinating life. And that's Miss Del Rio by Barbara Mujica. Yeah, that one sounds really good. I have not picked that one up yet. I thought it was great, but I really love that era in Hollywood. And she included all sorts of details that I have not read about elsewhere, like when United Artists was first founded by some of the famous actors of the time period wanting to kind of take control of their careers, and they were trying to get ready to convert to talkies. They did this big radio production where like 10 of them came on together and talked about different things. Some of them sang, some of them read poetry, Charlie Chaplin was also there and he couldn't even do it. He stuttered and it made him not even try to attempt a talkie film for like 10 more years. And so it was just really interesting. Like she just included a lot of details I was completely unfamiliar with. And as I said, I knew nothing about the Mexican film industry. So it was interesting to read about that too. That sounds great. All right. My next one is nonfiction, true crime, and that's The Forever Witness by Edward Humes. And I believe this comes out November the 29th. This book would be one that I would highly recommend for fans of I'll Be Gone in the Dark. We follow teens Tanya Van Kylenborg and Jay Cook, who were murdered during a trip to Seattle in 1987. They were missing for several days. Of course, this is the 1980s where kids just roamed around with no cell phones. After several days, though, the families were concerned that they had not heard from their kids. But sadly, bodies were eventually found and detectives had very few leads. The murder weapon was missing. No one witnessed any suspicious activity. And there was only a single handprint on the outside of the young couple's van. The detectives assumed Tanya and Jay were victims of a serial killer, but without any leads, the case seemed forever doomed. After 30 years, Detective Jim Sharp arrested the teenage couple's murderer, but in doing so, he exposed a looming battle between the pursuit of justice and the right to privacy. In Forever Witness, which refers to DNA being considered a forever witness, we meet C.C. Moore who excels in her lifetime fascination with genetic genealogy. There are people all over the country who use DNA given to testing companies in pursuit of ancestry. But she also discovered another use for the technology, which is solving cold cases. When Detective Jim Sharp decided to send the cold case's decades-old DNA to Parabon Nanolabs, he hoped he would bring closure to the Van Kylenborg and Cook families. He didn't know he and Moore would be making history. Anyone can submit a saliva sample to learn about their ancestry. But what happens after the results of these tests are uploaded to the internet? Lawyers, policymakers, and police officers continue the fight over questions of consent and privacy. Approximately 250,000 murders in the United States remain unsolved today. We have the tools to catch many of these killers, but at what cost? I think this one would be a really, really good 
book club discussion book, or you're going to want to talk to other people about this. And do we want to just say there's no there's no privacy anymore, and anything that's been released to these companies can be used for solving cases? Um, it's a, definitely a hot topic, and I found this book very very interesting. That is the Forever Witness by Edward Humes. That does sound really interesting. I'm not familiar with it, but it does sound like it raises all sorts of legal issues, privacy issues, a variety of things. Mm -hmm. It really does. And I don't know. I mean, if, if they find that this is okay to use for cold cases, what would cause um, insurance companies to not be able to get it to decide whether or not people should have health care? It just opens up a big Pandora's box. It totally does. There are so many things that it could be used for if it were used for this type of thing. Mm -hmm. All right. So my next one is Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng, and it came out October 4th as well. I think four of mine came out on October 4th. That was a big pub date for me. In a near future world, 12-year-old Bird Gardner lives in an apartment on the Harvard University campus with his father, a former linguist who now shelves books at the university's library. For over 10 years, the United States has been ruled by laws created to maintain an American way of life in light of years of violence and economic upheaval. Those who oppose these laws have their children removed from them and their livelihoods taken away. Moreover, libraries have removed books deemed unpatriotic, including a book of poems written by Bird's mother, Margaret, that are linked to a growing resistance movement. While she left when he was nine and Bird has learned to disavow her, when he receives a special drawing he believes is from her, he sets out on a long journey to find her. This heartbreaking and ultimately hopeful book shines a light on injustice and racism and demonstrates how art and quiet resistance can bring about change. I loved both the way she built the story up. You're wondering, where is Bird's mother? What did she do? What is it like for him to have to disavow the woman he only knew as a wonderful mother? How did these laws come into being? what happened to all the books that are banned, and what everything looks like. I just kept wondering, like, where is this all going, and what is happening, and what is Margaret up to? And I love, love, love the role that librarians get to play in the story. Ng had to do a fair amount of world building, and she pulls it off very well. It's a haunting and somewhat scary and sad story, but it's an important one as well, and I think it is ultimately hopeful. I highly recommend this one, and it's Our Missing Hearts by Celeste Ng. All right. My next one is The Whalebone Theater by Joanna Quinn. I likened this book to If Scout Finch Was Dropped Into Downton Abbey. And interestingly, I, I put that on my Instagram and the author responded, that's absolutely how I would describe my book. So that made me feel good. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So the little girl's name is Christabel Seagrave. She's our main character. We follow her life from a little girl to womanhood against the backdrop of pre-World War II to post-World War II in York, England. Three siblings left largely unsupervised find a huge beached whale on the shore near their home in 1928. By law, it belongs to the king, but 12-year-old orphan Christabel Seagrave has other plans. She and the rest of the household, other than the parents, our step-parents, Build a theater from the beast's skeletal ribcage. Within the Whalebone Theater, Crystal Bell Kim escape her awful step-parents and governess, and her imagination comes to life. As Christabel grows into a headstrong young woman, World War II rears its ugly head. She and Digby, which is her half-brother, 
become British secret agents on separate missions in Nazi-occupied France. A more dangerous kind of play acting, it turns out, and one that threatens to tear the family apart. This was my Penguin Random House rep's favorite book of the fall catalog, and Jenna Bush Hager picked it for her October book club. I just loved the the little girl. I love spunky, precocious girls in literature. Um, it's long and maybe a little more character-driven. So if you know that that's the kind of book you like, great. Or if you don't like it, I would stay away from this one. But ultimately, I just, I dearly loved it. And that's The Whalebone Theater by Joanna Quinn. I've heard good things about that one. So I may have to circle back to it as well. Yeah, it was a surprise hit for me. And one that I thought, wasn't going to get a lot of press, but it seems like it it has kind of gained in popularity since its release. Absolutely. And since Jenna picked it. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so my next one is The Storyteller's Death by Anne Davila Cardinal. And that came out on October 4th. When the publicist was pitching this one to me, she said it was her favorite book she'd ever worked on. So I knew I had to pick it up. The Storyteller's Death is set in Puerto Rico and follows Isla Larson Sanchez as she comes to terms with a strange family gift she inherits after her grandmother, a great storyteller, dies. This gift makes her family's stories come to life and play out in front of her over and over again until she resolves the issue at the heart of each story. But when an old murder mystery surfaces in her visions, she has to race to solve the murder before the visions take her life. This book is so compelling, unique, and lyrically written. And everything about it was fabulous. The characters, the vivid setting, and the creative storyline. I felt like I visited Puerto Rico and experienced life there in the 1970s and 80s, and I was so sad when it was over. I recently interviewed Anne and was so intrigued to find out that a lot of the story was autobiographical, obviously not the visions, but her time spent in Puerto Rico with other family, her childhood with her mother when she was young, and more. It made me like the book even more. And then when we were talking about how evocative her prose was, that I was telling her I felt like I truly had been transported to Puerto Rico and into the visions that Isla has, she said that she had had a creative writing teacher who told her that most writers forget to include the sense of smell and how important it is to include. And she thinks that that really helps her setting come to life. And I thought that was really cool. And so that is The Storyteller's Death by Anne Davila Cardinal. I haven't even heard of that one, but it sounds really, really good. It is so good. It has this beautiful cover and it, there is some magic realism in it. So as long as you're good with that, it's a great story because these visions do come to life. But it was very well done. It will be one of my favorite reads of the year. All right. I'm going to put that on my list for sure. All right. My next one is a teeny tiny little book, and that is Foster by Claire Keegan, which is out November the 1st. Foster was originally published as an abridged version in The New Yorker and considered a contemporary classic in Ireland and in the UK, where the Faber edition has sold over 120,000 copies. This book is right around 90 pages long. Uh, I actually read it in one sitting and just devoured it. So in Foster, we meet a young girl who is being raised in poverty in rural Ireland by parents who are really having a hard time. The mother's pregnant, the dad is working a, a whole lot, and she's just sort of really struggling to, to find her place in the world. So the girl is sent to live with childless and better off relatives who she doesn't know over the summer so her parents can have a break. Here in a warm, loving environment, the young girl flourishes. But what will happen at the end of the summer when the girl's father wants her back? 
This is such a sweet, uh, sweet, sweet story. I think this would be great even um, to read during the holidays when you don't have a whole lot of time. And it it's very, very special. I need to read more of Claire Keegan. She's now becoming a favorite of mine. What else has she written? Small things like these. Okay. So I guess this is technically a um, a re-release, but um, I'm going to count it as a book. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That works. All right. So I'm to my next one, which is Marmy by Sarah Miller, and it comes out October 25th. Sarah Miller's Marmy retells little women from the perspective of the four girls' mother, Margaret March, known to them as Marmy. Using a diary format, the book follows the same events and timeline as the original book. However, since an adult is the narrator, some events that occupy a lot of space in the original story get little more than a passing reference here and vice versa. Most notable to me were Marmy's reflections on her husband's absence, his lack of understanding finances and how that impacts his family, the realities of the Civil War and how it was affecting those left at home, and the time she spends helping others. The novel traces Marmy's own personal growth, as Alcott's novel does for the March girls, and is at its strongest when revealing her struggles with loneliness while her husband is absent, her sadness at the war's horrific impact on civilians, and her profound grief when she loses a daughter. I had tears in my eyes when I got to the end of this one. I also thought it was interesting that Miller weaves in some of Alcott's personal history to fill in some gaps in Little Women. She has an in-depth author's note, which talks about the book and what she included and didn't include. Marmy is a beautiful book that can be read as a standalone or as a companion to Little Women. My Patreon group is reading this one as our October early read and author chat, and we talk with Sarah tonight. I am really looking forward to chatting with her because she must have done an incredible amount of research, and I've had great feedback from readers on this one. And that's Marmy by Sarah Miller. Yeah, I know Allison, our one of our store owners, really loved that one. You and Allison read very similarly. Yeah, that was one that, that she loved. We do seem to line up. After you had told her that and she and I were talking, we were talking about a variety of the books that we had both really liked. Yes, yeah, y'all are definitely book twins. <laughs> it's always good to find those people. That's right. Okay, I'm wondering if this next one is on both of our lists. The Matchmaker's Gift by Linda Loikman. Okay, I love this book so much and it was on my list, but then I had just recorded this episode with Kelly where we do, Kelly Hooker, where we do like the quarter reads, so July through September, and I had several overlaps. And so I was like, okay, I really need to have not quite so much overlap. So I pulled it off, but I loved it. So go ahead and talk about it. But it it, it would have been on my list. Okay, good. I, I knew you loved it too. And it's got such a gorgeous cover. I initially was attracted to this book because I loved Fiddler on the Roof when I was a little girl. My friends and I would pretend like we were the sisters. So even though they kind of talks in the book about how matchmakers are nothing like Fiddler on the Roof, I still have a special place in my heart for matchmakers. Uh, what an absolute delight. Love abounds, not only between a grandmother and a granddaughter, but also the love matches they make using their special gift of matchmaking. I loved the dual timeline and appreciate the research the author did to create this authentic and heartwarming tale. And I don't want to say a whole lot more other than I, I love intergenerational stories. And the historical fiction part of this takes place in the 19-teens with a Jewish immigrant coming to America. And that one was kind of a unique time frame for me. I don't read a whole lot about that era. And I just loved it. So this was this is one, if you've read a whole lot of 
heavy downer books, I would highly recommend picking up The Matchmaker's Gift. I agree. And that was another Patreon early read and literally everyone loved it. And she was so delightful on our author chat. And in fact, everybody liked it so much, I ended up inviting her to participate in one of our Houston Literary Salons. So she's coming on November 3rd to Houston, and I can't wait. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm really excited because that book is wonderful. So my next one is Gilded Mountain by Kate Manning, and it comes out November 1st. In a voice spiked with sly humor, Sylvie Pelletier recounts leaving her family's snowbound mountain cabin to work in a manor house for the Pagets, owner of the marble mining company that employs her father and dominates the town. She is awed by the luxury around her, fascinated by her employer, the charming Countess Ing, and confused by the erratic affections of Jasper, the bookish heir to the family fortune. Her fairy tale ideas of romance take a dark turn when she realizes the Paget's lofty philosophical talk is at odds with the unfair labor practices that have enriched them. Outside the manor walls, the town of Moonstone is roiling with discontent. A handsome union organizer, along with labor leader Mary Harris Mother Jones, is stirring up the quarry workers. The editor of the local newspaper, a bold woman who takes Sylvie on as an apprentice, is publishing unflattering accounts of the Paget Company. Sylvie navigates vastly different worlds and struggles to find her way amid conflicting loyalties. When the harsh winter brings tragedy, Sylvie must choose between silence and revenge. The prose is just beautiful in this one. It took a little while for it to get going for me, but once it did, I was completely invested in the story. She brings the era and the region to life, and at the heart of the story is the lack of concern over the value of human life by the rich. Manning has meticulously researched the story, and it was easy to envision these events taking place. I'm chatting with Kate for my podcast soon, and I can't wait to hear all about all of the work that went into this book, and that is Gilded Mountain by Kate Manning. Yeah, I got to hear her speak last week at my um, conference about this book. Uh, And it's one that I started and it kind of lost a little steam for me, but you're making me want to try it again. I was trying to read it while I was moving my daughter to college. So maybe that wasn't the best time to try to concentrate on the book, but she does have a beautiful way of writing and maybe I'll pick it back up and try it again. I think once Mother Jones got into the story, things really picked up and kind of moved along. So it was one of those that I wasn't sure about at first, but once it got going, I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I didn't get to Mother Jones, so I'm going to try it again. Good. All right, my next one is The Twist of a Knife by Anthony Horowitz out November 15th. This is the fourth in the hugely popular meta-mystery series that stars Detective Hawthorne, ex-Detective Hawthorne, and Anthony Horowitz, who is the author who writes himself into these fictionalized stories. All three previous books have been favorites of mine, Truly one of the very few series that I read. This one starts with the word is murder, the sentence is death, and here we are, fourth go-round. So Horowitz himself is the suspect in this new story. He tells Hawthorne their partnership is over because he wants to focus on his new play. But when the play receives a savage review and the Times critic is found dead, stabbed in the heart with an ornamental dagger that belongs to Horowitz, He's the prime suspect and needs Hawthorne to help solve the case. So Detective Hawthorne is hilarious. He doesn't care about anything and just he makes me laugh out loud. And I just like the unique premise with Anthony Horowitz being a fictionalized character in his own story. And that is The Twist of a Knife by Anthony Horowitz. 
I always think of you whenever I see these books because I know how much you like them. I know. I was so excited. And normally he does, he's got the Magpie Murder series and then this one, and he'll go back and forth. But this one, there's been two in a row. So I think maybe he's enjoying writing these maybe more than Magpie or who knows. I just, Anthony Horowitz is, I will read anything he writes. I utterly love his books. Like I said, I always think of you when I see his books. (laughs) My next book is The Last Party by Claire McIntosh, which comes out November 8th. I am a huge fan of Claire's last book, Hostage, so I was very excited for this one, and it did not disappoint. The storyline is fabulous, and it's set in Wales, which I knew very little about. I loved learning so much about Wales and the Welsh language and culture. This psychological thriller is set at the shore, an exclusive community of lake lodges in Mirror Lake under the shadow of a prominent mountain and near a local village, just inside the Welsh border with England. The town has a New Year's Day tradition of a morning swim in the freezing cold Mirror Lake. But this year, the swim is cut short when the body of a man is found floating in the lake. The victim, Reese Lloyd, a local celebrity and has-been opera singer, is the developer of the shore with his business partner, John Teak Charlton. Due to the shore's location on the Wales-England border, a joint investigation with D.C. Fionn Morgan from North Wales and D.C. Leo Bradley of Cheshire Major Crimes from the English side results. The story is written in a dual timeline format. The events that build up to the murder are relayed in the past, while the investigation into the murder is told in the present day, which works really well for this mystery. The highlights of the book are the stellar mystery, the Welsh setting with a glimpse into the Welsh culture and history, the solid cast of characters, and the humor she infuses throughout the book. The way the two police detectives meet initially is hilarious. This is a stellar start to a new police procedural series, and I highly recommend it. It's The Last Party by Claire McIntosh. Yeah, I really like her too. She's a fun mystery thriller writer. My next one is also in the mystery thriller genre, and that is Forsaken Country by Alan Eskins. I adore Eskins' novels, and his latest, Forsaken Country, was a huge hit for me. Deeply atmospheric and tense, I felt the chill and terror of looking for a kidnapped child as winter approaches in the north country of Minnesota. All of his books are set in Minnesota. I care deeply for the characters in this fast-paced literary thriller. The head detective is one that we met in The Stolen Hours, which was his last book. He has decided to take leave from his detective job following the murder of his wife. But three fathers are on a collision course with a kidnapped child and mother, which forced Rupert back into detective work. So again, I he's another auto-buy author for me. I've loved all of his books, and he usually will have one character from the last book, who was an ancillary character, becomes the main character in his next book. And I love that. So that's Forsaken Country by Alan Eskins. I've heard great things about him, but I have never read any of his books. I think he's very popular in Minnesota. So I'm doing the very best I can to get to bring him down to Texas. Spread the love. Spread the love. So my next one is Trespasses by Louise Kennedy, and it comes out November 1st. They moved the pub date up for this one to the first of the month, so I'm very curious to see if that means it's been selected as a celebrity book club pick or if they just moved it to move it. Yeah, I think I think it will be. Yeah, I think it will be too, just based on things I keep hearing. So, Mm -hmm. Set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, this is a shattering novel about a young woman caught between allegiance to community and a dangerous passion. 
Amid daily reports of violence, Kushla lives a quiet life with her mother in a small town near Belfast. By day, she teaches at a parochial school. At night, she fills in at the family's pub. There she meets Michael Agnew, a barrister who's made a name for himself defending IRA members. Against her better judgment, Michael is not only Protestant, but older and married. Kushla lets herself get drawn in by him and his sophisticated world, and an affair ignites. Then the father of a student is savagely beaten, setting in motion a chain reaction that will threaten everything and everyone that Kushla most wants to protect. As tender as it is unflinching, Trespasses is a heart-pounding, heart-rending drama of thwarted love and irreconcilable loyalties in a place where what you come from seems to count more than what you do or whom you cherish. This book is fabulous, and I loved the setting and the storyline. I will say that it is brutal and absolutely chilling on occasions, depicting the tragedy of the religious divide and the bigotry. And I didn't know a ton about the troubles. I feel like I'm slowly filling in with different books. So this was a great way to learn more, and I cannot wait to talk with Louise about the book toward the end of the month. And that is Trespasses by Louise Kennedy. Yeah, I think this one would be a good companion to the movie Belfast. I haven't seen that, but also maybe Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. Yes. Yeah. And I just read another mystery called The Winter Guest by W.C. Ryan that also is set during the Troubles. So I feel like that that time period, which obviously has been around and people know about it, but right now there seems to be more written about it. I agree. It really is taking taking off and it's very complicated and hard to understand. But anyway, I think that'll be a, a huge hit this year for sure. I do too. All right. My last one is a nonfiction called This Is What It Sounds Like by Susan Rogers. Now, Susan Rogers was Prince's sound engineer. Following her legendary career, Rogers became a PhD-level neuroscientist who studies what music does to the brain. She dives into the different parameters of music, which define each chapter, including authenticity, realism, novelty, melody, lyrics, timbre, and rhythm, to help readers deep dive into what they really love in music. She poo-poos the idea of being a music snob. You may love heavy metal, or you may love John Denver. The heart wants what the heart wants. When you are reading the book, she will say, now stop here and download this song, or don't, or there'll be several songs she wants you to listen to while you're reading the book. What did you notice about the way the brain processes that information? Do you see the story playing out? Do you envision the artist singing? Do you envision yourself in the audience listening? It was so fascinating and helpful to aid in defining each reader's personal listener profile. It's very, very sciencey, but it's also a story of her life as a musical trailblazer who began as a humble, married right out of high school audio tech in Los Angeles and rose to become Prince's chief sound engineer for Purple Rain and then created other no number one hits, including Bare Naked Ladies One Week and is one of the most successful female record producers of all time. And I'll quote this, while exploring the science of music in the brain, Rogers also takes us behind the scenes of record making, using her insider's ear to illuminate the music of Prince, Frank Sinatra, Kanye West, Lana Del Rey, and many others. She shares records that changed her life and contrast them with those that appeal to her co-author and her students. She works at Berkeley. 
and encourages you to think about the records that define your own identity. You know, I'm not a big uh, music, and it's called This Is What It Sounds Like, which is, I think it's a play on the Prince song, When Doves Cry. But I'm not a huge musical person, but I've read several interesting books about the science of music and why it's so attractive to us. And this one was just really interesting. And I loved downloading songs that she mentions and and hearing, and I'm, I'm trying to do a better job of figuring out what I actually like for my personal sound profile. Okay, that sounds really good. I haven't heard about that one at all. And I am a huge music person. And I listen to music all the time, which sometimes makes it harder to fit in audiobooks. I think that's sometimes why I'm not as big an audiobook listener as some, because I almost always opt to listen to music. But I just love so many different songs, and they take me back to different time periods in my life or make me think of different events or seeing a group in concert or whatever it is. So I definitely need to add that one to my list. Yes, this is one that I was just recently at our a conference, and I really like W.W. Norton publishers. And they have a lot of science and nature books. And this one was the most popular one they talked about. So I, I really, really liked the way she described music. I'll have to check that one out. I cannot believe we have not had a single overlap. I think this is the first time. I think so too. I was, I kept waiting and it never happened. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so my last one is A Ghost of Caribou by Alice Henderson, which comes out November 15th. In A Ghost of Caribou, Alex Carter, a wildlife biologist, is sent to northern Washington state, where a mountain caribou is believed to have been seen for the first time in decades. This would be monumental, because the animal is believed to be extinct in the lower United States. Alex is hired by the Land Trust for Wildlife Conservation to investigate and set cameras to determine if one or more of these mountain caribou has wandered south from Canada. However, when she arrives, she quickly discovers that finding an elusive caribou isn't her only challenge. Right on the edges of the land trust, logging interest and environmental activists are at an impasse over an old-growth forest, and several women have gone missing from the area over the last few years. Henderson's focus on fascinating wildlife research work and the environmental impact of endangered animal species make this a unique and compelling read and a unique and compelling series. It is absolutely fascinating to learn all about what Alex does and more about whichever animals she is focusing on for a particular book. I knew nothing about mountain caribou and didn't even know there was more than one type of caribou until I spoke with Alice for my podcast last year, and then I read this book. I have only ever seen the more common caribou when I have been in Alaska and Canada. While this is the third installment in the Alex Carter series, A Ghost of Caribou can be read as a standalone as well. Alice Henderson has carved out a niche in the thriller arena with this outstanding series that focuses on vanishing animals and their habitats. The first in the series is A Solitude of Wolverines, which I also loved. And the second one is A Blizzard of Polar Bears, which is probably my third favorite in the series. And so that is A Ghost of Caribou by Alice Henderson. Yeah, we sold the the polar bears one really well at the store. And I had not heard that she had another one coming out. So I'm glad to know that. And it's really good. And I think it got a starred Publishers Weekly review. And I've been seeing all sorts of glowing reviews about it. So it's, I love them all, but it is definitely my favorite of the three. That's good to know. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. This was so much fun. And as always, I've added a couple books to my list. And again, I am just absolutely astounded that we didn't overlap with one single title. I know. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That way we actually have 20 books on the list. <laughs> I know. I, I, I had a, 
an honorary mention I was going to do just in case, but I'm glad it worked out this way. Me too. Well, thanks as always for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you, Cindy. And I hope that you have a a happy holidays and look forward to hearing what you're reading in 2023. I know. We'll have to come back and talk about all those fabulous winter 2023 books. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to my podcast. I want to quickly share about this wonderful company I am now partnering with. I am always looking for entities that promote and highlight books and recently came across book clubs, a company who provides all sorts of resources for established and new book clubs, as well as individual readers. My own personal book club recently signed up on book clubs, and the group has been impressed with all of the great tools the site and app provide. The book club's website is linked in my show notes, and I hope you will check them out soon. Also, if you like my show, I would be so grateful if you would tell everyone you know about it and rate it on whichever platform you listen on. It truly makes a huge difference and really helps the show grow. I hope you will check out some other Thoughts from a Page episodes and have a great day. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.